Welcome to the Topeka First podcast. We are one church with several locations. Our mission is to reach our community with the message of Jesus. If you would like to give to support this podcast and the ministries of our church, please visit topekafirst.com giving. Enjoy the podcast. This is an old story. It's an old story and it hasn't changed. We're going to look together as we, we uh, step into our series this month. Uh, we're looking at long expected, long expected. And we know that many years ago, uh, that uh, we could say centuries ago, like I said earlier, from the foundation of the world, God had decided that man had messed up and he knew it was going to happen and he made the provision uh, for us to come into faith with him. Well, this morning, uh, we're going to look at a light to the Gentiles, and, and, and I'm going to throw some things out at you. Forecasting is an art, not only a science, right? It's an art, and uh, some of them get it wrong, right? Forecasting, when they look at the weather and the different things. When I left the house this morning, it was warmer in Holton than it is here, at least at that time. And I got out, and I'm driving down the road, and it was nice and clear roads. And all of a sudden, I looked in front of me in front of my lights, and I saw snowflakes, and I was confused. I thought I was going to Omaha or something instead, but I'm coming to Topeka, and it starts snowing down here. And um, uh, the, mo- uh, the most of us checked our weather forecast for Thanksgiving. We had some crazy weather last week, and maybe you weren't sure if you were going to be able to go where you wanted to go because of what the weather was doing, snow or ice, and maybe you looked at the radar screens, maybe you pulled your phone out and pulled out the app to try to figure out uh, what it was going to do that day. I'm not sure where you were at, but uh, and sometimes we do that already, trying to figure out what's the weather going to be like tomorrow. Yesterday was great. If you pulled out your radar yesterday, uh, at least for us here, it was nice, and if you look north of us, it was snow, and if you look south of us, it was rain, and we, we had the wind, and it was nice, and we were enjoying it, but Yet long before Jesus the Christ arrived on the scene, God was speaking to his prophets centuries in advance. He was letting them know that he wasn't going, that he was going to send a light for everyone and that his salvation would reach the very ends of the earth. It's going to happen through the servant of the Lord. Jesus was long expected. The Messiah, the Christ, was long expected. The thing we have to remember is God's radar is not like ours. For him, it's, uh, it's, diff- it's different. He has a plain picture of what's going to happen. For us, it's a little fuzzy in what we see in the future and around us. And like Jim was saying, we live in a challenging time. We know that. We realize that we are in that. And But we understand that God's foreknowledge or his ability to know ahead works 100%. He's not like us. God doesn't give us all the information in advance through his prophets, which is interesting, but he but he gives us snippets through them, little little parts that that can help us to recognize what he'll be doing in the future. And this was what happened with the arrival of Jesus. God was speaking to his people in advance that there was a great light that was going to arrive. That light would be a servant. 
Let's look at it this morning. Isaiah chapter 49 is our text, and 49 verse 5 is where we're going to start. And here we see the expectation of the Messiah, the long-expected Messiah. And, and Isaiah prophesies about it. This is only one of those passages that he speaks about him. And in Isaiah 49, verse 5, it says, And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel I have kept. We know that, uh, that the prophet Isaiah, he speaks a lot about, uh, about the remnant, about those who are still going to serve the Lord, even though everybody else had went their own way. And he goes on here and he says, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And this is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see you and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. When you read this prophetic song from Isaiah, the the prophet, you, you need to step back and ask a question or two of what he is saying here. Uh, but when you, when you read this passage, it's important to, uh, uh, to see that you can interpret this whole passage together. And, uh, but the, the challenge here is that a, a straightforward application to Israel, to say that Israel is the servant uh, itself, really is ruled out by what he says in verses 5 to 7. The intended result is that when you read this, you are forced by Isaiah 49 to ask the question, who in the world is he talking about? Who is this servant that Isaiah is, is, is writing about, he's prophesying about? And so we realize that God is revealing what he's going to do through Israel and the servant. God's forecasting what he was going to do through this servant. And in verse 5, it makes it clear that the servant is not Israel because he has a ministry to Israel. And the people may despise him, as you see here in verse 7, but God honors him. And honor is shown in the range of his ministry. And Scripture shows that through the servant's ministry, he, uh, he will be brought to great honor before the world's kings and princes. The phrase and now implies the transition from the ministry of the Gospels to the proclamation of the Gospel by the, by the, uh, the apostles of, of Acts. And the word in verse 6 is interesting. That, there's a phrase there in verse 6. I put it in red in my notes here. Is, it is too small a thing, he says. It is too small a thing. And it reveals how big this person really is, this servant that he's talking about. Israel's had some light. They've had light. They're uh, a light in the world. But they need some restoration because they've went off and they've ran their own direction. 
But Gentiles need both light and salvation. That's everybody else, right? The Jewish people, and then there's them and Israel, and then, then, there's, then there's the Gentiles, the rest of us who don't have that background. But we understand who he's speaking about. Well, we've, we've been in the church for a while. We know, but he's speaking about Jesus, the Messiah. Understand who it is, and, and this this ministry is to break, bring Israel back to Himself and to provide salvation to the ends of the earth. And I, Isaiah doesn't stop forecasting here. He doesn't stop. He, he continues to prophesy. And look at what he goes on to say here in verse eight of chapter forty-nine. It says this on the screen. It should show it for you. This is what the Lord says. In the time of my favor, I will answer you. And in the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people to restore the land to, and to reassign its desolate inheritances. To say to the captives, come out and to those in darkness, be free. Amen. They will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will they desert, uh, will the desert heat or the sun. I guess I'm thinking about des dessert from uh, Thanksgiving. <laughs> Jody, that was good apple pie, by the way. <laughs> All right, let's get back to this. Uh, nor will the desert heat nor the sun beat down on them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. I love that passage. The Lord's showing that He's going to take care of us. He's going to provide what we need. And, and then He goes on to say in verse 11, I will turn all my mountains into roads and my highways will be raised up. He's, he's said in that poetic, prophetic song, He's saying, look, these things that used to be difficult for you, you couldn't hardly get through them. I'm going to lay those mountains flat so you just go along them. That's great. My highways will be raised up. See, we find that it's not uh, the only forecast that God sends through His prophets before uh, the Messiah or the Christ would come. We look at more in the days leading up to Christmas. We'll look at some more. Uh, but there's another side to the story, and God's prophets knew how to provide a proper forecast of what God was going to do. Unlike some of our moderns who use their technology to try to tell us if it's going to snow or rain or be hot or cold and all those things, and we know how well that works. That's a whole other world. But when we look to the Lord, we realize that He, uh, he knows what He's doing. Uh, here's some of those fun mistakes and fun uh, forecasts that mankind has made. Smart people, right? And here's what, in 1926, the inventor of the cathode ray tube said this. Now, cathode ray tube, I don't think they use those anymore, but that's what was in a TV, right? So that you could watch the TV. Remember, for those of you that have been around for a little while, remember the big TVs? That when you picked it up, it weighed like 7,000 pounds, you know? They're terrible. And uh, I remember we brought one when we moved back from California. It was like a big TV. It was huge, and it was about that thick. And our former youth pastor and, uh, and husband came through the, the area, and uh, they, they, they wanted a TV. 
And this guy was, he was pretty big and muscular. And, and he said, uh, yeah, can, we can have the TV? I said, yeah, you can have it. We got a, one of those thin ones now, you know. And so he picks it up by himself and puts it in the van. I'm like, that thing must weigh 200 pounds. Anyway, let me get back on what I was talking about. So the inventor in 1926 of the cathode ray tube said, theoretically, television may be feasible, but I consider it an impossibility, a development which we should waste little time dreaming about. Little would he know today. Then in 1943, we have another guy. Uh, you have uh, the chairman of the board of IBM. I've, I've shared this before, but uh, he said, I think there is a world market for about five computers. 1943. Even later, we have uh, a recording company expert who said this in 1962. He said, little did any, or uh, sorry, we don't think the Beatles will do anything in their market. Guitar groups are on their way out. So little did any of these guys uh, realize that these forces in the world would be game changers for the world that we live in now. And they, they didn't do well on their forecast. But what we do understand is the Lord does well on His. It's one thing to have a forecast, but it's a whole other thing to see the forecast fulfilled. And Isaiah did well following the Lord's leading in his forecast of the coming Savior. And here is the other side of the story. We don't see all of it yet, but we see a substantial amount of it. And we see the fulfillment here at Isaiah 49. Over in the book of Acts, we find in Acts chapter 13... Some very important information as we, we see here that some of the uh, followers of Jesus had been preaching. It was Paul and Barnabas. They were out there and uh, they'd been preaching the message of the risen Christ to Jewish and uh, Gentile believers in the local synagogues uh, in the city of P Pisidian Antioch. There's a couple Antiochs and Pisidian Antioch is another one of them. And, and this is what it says in verse 46 of chapter 13. It says, then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. They were speaking to God's people, the Jewish people. And he says, we, have, we had to speak the word of God to you first. First to the Jewish people. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And since you rejected and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is, this is what the Lord has commanded us. And look at what he says here in this last part. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. It seems here that Paul and Barnabas told God's people that, that uh, we're not going to share this message of hope with you anymore, but we're going to tell everyone else that we can. That's the Gentiles. It's interesting. These men quote Isaiah chapter 49. They're, they're quoting that prophetic word that had uh, been given so many centuries before this. And, and this really shouldn't be surprising that many of God's people, Israel, didn't accept him because Isaiah chapter 49 verse 7 uh, helps us understand that that's probably what was going to take place. In verse 7, it says, This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, who Israel at the time, to the servant of rulers, 
Kings will see you stand up. Princes will see you see and bow down. In fact, this wasn't the only place that Isaiah said that the Messiah would be despised and rejected. We know that there are other passages where he prophesied that that would be the case. But what seems to be a sad state for Israel at that time turns to be a great blessing to those who are Gentiles. Gentiles is everybody else who are non-Jewish and non, uh, they were not part of, uh, of Israel. And so now through Jesus, the Messiah, we could have salvation, their rejection has become our hope. Not that they will always reject that. Many of them actually did receive Christ, and Scripture even talks about many priests became obedient to the faith as well. So it's not like it was totally everyone. This was not the only place we find fulfillment of the prophet's forecast. If you look over in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 2, here we find the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth, and he's trying to help them keep a, a, a correct perspective about their faith. And, and, so let, and, and then he tells them this, As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, In the time of my favor, I heard you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Do you see that passage there again? Do you see what he's saying there? Paul is quoting again Isaiah 49, verse 8. And he's saying to them, in some sense, the time that Isaiah was talking about, when the Messiah would come has arrived. It is here. And he says, now is the day of salvation. It's not tomorrow. It's not two days from now. It's not next month or next year. I'm afraid sometimes what happens with people is they think, uh, they th you know what, that's something we can do later on. Maybe when I get to that stage, maybe when I'm on my deathbed, I can do that. May, may, we don't know. Today is the day of salvation. I remember when I played the fool as a youth and thought, well, when I get about 30, you know, old, now that I'm looking back, I thought I, I could, thought I could give my life to Christ. But what, what a foolish thing, I thought, at that point. And we, can't, we have to recognize that today is a day of salvation, not tomorrow. Luke, uh, it, it's interesting here. We're going to jump into Luke here in just a, a little bit. But when we look towards Christmas, really what Christmas is about is about hope. It's about salvation, and God in His great wisdom told Isaiah in advance that He was going to make that hope available. Back, in the, back before World War I, over in France, uh, there was a guy named Jean, and uh, Jean met a shepherd in the French Alps, and at that time, people had been careless. Uh, there in the, that part of the Alps, they had been deforesting in that area, just cutting down trees without replanting, without really taking care of it. And uh, so, and it was in Provence, France, and it became barren because the way they just cut everything down without replenishing it. And uh, the villagers had deserted the area because the springs had dried up and the wind blew without limitation of the foliage because the trees are gone. And John stayed, uh, stayed overnight in a, in a shepherd's hut in that area, and the shepherd's name was Bouffier. And uh, after, after dinner, he watched as Bouffier meticulously sorted through a pile of acorns, de de uh, 
just guarding the cracked ones because he knew the cracked ones weren't going to be any good. And he spent all of his time after dinner doing that until he went to bed. And this 55-year-old shepherd, Bouffier, had been planting trees for three years. He planted 100,000 trees. And of those, about 20,000 trees had sprouted. But after World War I, Jean went back to this area to see the, the area that was recovering with new trees. And he, uh, the water was flowing in the empty brooks. And Bouffier continued to plant all the way through World War II, just basically ignoring that. How do you do that when you're in the middle of war, right? But he does as a shepherd out there. And uh, Jean went back to the area after the 40s, and, and he said, on the site of the ruins that I had seen in 1913, now stood farms again. They were, they were able to live and work in that area because there was hope again. For many of their lives, they had, left, had, uh, they had felt like they were in ruins, but Jesus' arrival brings hope. Some people need hope planted in their lives. The season that we're in, it's important for us to remember that some people need hope. We know that. We know some of them that need hope. And some of them are in a sad state thinking there's no hope for themselves. But the fact is that we must be people who are willing, like Bouffier, to go and to plant seeds of hope in their life to share the life of Christ with them. No better opportunity, no better time than now for today is the day of salvation. They may have missed out, but he planted new life in you through faith. One of my most favorite uh, passages in the New Testament really comes out of out of Luke here, in Luke chapter 2, it talks about the coming of Christ and all the events that are taking place around that. Uh, this, actually, this part actually happens after Jesus is born, and it's, a, it's an encounter that Jesus' family has with a man of God. And I'm not sure what kind of credentials this guy has. Uh, we don't really know, but the scripture is plain that this man was devout and uh, he was righteous. So that means he, he, must, he must have been faithful to God in his word. Uh, he must have lived like the law required of him, and the man's name was Simeon. And, and Luke doesn't associate Simeon with a leading sector party like the Pharisees or Sadducees or anybody like that. Uh, but uh, he doesn't call him a priest. You think of we, uh, one of the other people we would think of in the Christmas story and all of those events taking place would be Zachariah and John the Baptist as you go back in this part of the, of the text. But uh, uh, Zachariah, he was a priest. We know that. But as for Simeon, we don't know. We just know this guy was faithful to the Lord. And, and, and we see he, he could be described as one who was one of those believing remnant of Judaism as, as Isaiah may have talked about, about the remnant. And he was looking forward towards the Messiah coming. And in verse 25, he says this. It says he was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. I think that's really neat that he says that because... It's fitting that the Holy Spirit, who is the one who consoles, what he's the counselor, the paraclete, the one that comes alongside, right? 
The one who consoles was upon the one who was waiting for consolation. Let's look at Luke 2 together this morning. Luke 2, verse 27. It says, Moved by the Spirit, he, Simeon, this righteous and devout man, went, went into the temple courts, and when the parents, that would be Mary and Joseph, brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required. So it's some time after Jesus was born because of all the purification rites and such. And then in verse uh, 28, it says, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. I can be out of here, Lord. You're done with me, it seems like he's saying. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Did you see what he said there? Did, did you catch what he said? Uh, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 49 again out of, out of verse 6 there. He, he sees Jesus as the light, not only for Israel, but for the whole world. I couldn't imagine the excitement on uh, Simeon's uh, hard as he sensed who this baby was, and Jesus is to be the light of revelation to the Gentiles, and he's revealing who God is and his plan for hope and salvation for all of those who will trust him, all of those who will put their faith in him. And now Simeon also reveals something else. Jesus isn't only a light, but he is the glory of Israel, God's people. Honestly, that may seem a little bit hard to, to understand because Isaiah said the servant, over in 49, uh, the, said the servant Jesus was despised and abhorred by the nation Israel. But it's more important to link glory. Uh, it is very appropriate, I should say, to link glory with Israel. That word translated glory in the, in the Greek is doxa, and it means glory, majesty, fame, and we may even say magnificence or splendor. There's a lot said about glory over in the Old Testament, and especially related to God's manifestations of himself to his people. But, but Israel will see glory in its fullest sense when it sees the Son of God. John chapter 1, verse 4 says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. What a powerful scripture that is speaking about Jesus, the word, the word of God, right? And his being a light to the Gentiles doesn't reduce Israel's glory, but rather it is its fulfillment. We have to stop and ask ourselves, well, what does light really mean? Well, most of us know, right? Uh, when you got up this morning, uh, if you got up as early as I did, and many of you probably did, you, you had to turn the lights on because you can't see. It was too dark, right? Uh, we use lights all the time to be able to see around us, and that's just part of it. If the sun isn't up in the day, then, uh, uh, then we're looking for the moon in the night. We're looking for something to give us some light. We jump in our cars and we turn the lights on unless they're automatic. Then hopefully they do it for you if it's not broken. Uh, and we like light. Light's a great thing. And light helps us to see things as they really are. 
Here's the kicker with that. That can seem good or bad, can it? That can seem good or bad. That maybe there's a basement where you live and you would rather not see what is down there. You don't, want, you, you don't even turn the light on if you have to get something down there. You don't want to see the crickets. You don't want to see the, the, the box elder bugs. You don't want to see the spiders. I don't know what it is that you have in your basement, but whatever it is, you just don't want to see it. Uh, but if you don't turn the lights on, you can't see the good things either, can you? You can't see Grandma's diamond necklace from years ago that she lost over in the corner. I wish she'd have done that at my house. Uh, <laughs> you, you can't see the baseball cards maybe you saved there for 30 or 40 years. Jesus, the light of the world, does a couple things for us. He lets, lights up our life to show us the reality of our own sinfulness and our need for Him. And then he lights up the reality that Jesus came to earth to bring hope to our lives by saving us from our own sinfulness. He is a light for revelation because he reveals reality. He reveals the truth. That's what he does. Look at John chapter 1 verse 9 to 13 with me. It says here, John writes, he says, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was, not, uh, which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, I love this verse 12, it's so powerful. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Nothing better. And then he says in verse 13, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a human's will, but born of God. In spite of those who rejected Christ, there, are, there, were, the, there were some who received him in that day. And this gives us the initial definition of believe by associating it with the word to receive. We, re we believe in him, therefore we receive. And when we accept a gift, we show our confidence in the gift that gives reality and also that gives trustworthiness. We can accept it as our own, but when Christ, the gift, is received by you, He gives you the right to become a member of His family. That word become is an interesting word there. It shows clearly that people aren't the spiritual children of God by natural birth. If you recall some of the things I said when we were, we were sharing in communion this morning, it, it's not by procedure. It's, it's not, we, don't have, uh, we don't have salvation simply by procedure or, or simply by some ceremony that we perform, but we receive it through faith in Christ. That word become is important because we're becoming spiritual children of God by natural. Not by natural birth, but by supernatural birth. Become implies a change of nature. That word children emphasizes where uh, they, they come from and the term, it's a term of endearment, a term of love. 
believers are God's little ones related to him by birth, not of natural descent. So it doesn't come by some physical process or a husband's will shows that it's not by uh, the outcome of a marriage. But the the relationship is spiritual. It's not biological. Here, here a, a correct, a, there's a connection with the new birth, and John also emphasizes believing. The true light has come into the world, and it's Christ. You know, it's like I could say, well, yeah, I'm a Christian because my mom and dad went to church. That doesn't make me a Christian any more than eating pudding makes me pudding. (laughs) Just because they put their faith in Christ doesn't mean that I have put my faith in Christ. Now, it may mean something, it may mean this, It may mean I have accepted some of those traditions and brought them along in my life, and that's one thing, but that's not saving faith. That's just bringing those traditions along, and that's kind of what happened to the people of Israel back in the day. That's why it's important for us as followers of Jesus not just to be churchgoers, not just to be people who say, oh yeah, I grew up that way, so that's the way I'm going to continue. No, but it's we put our faith and trust in Christ the Messiah who gave his life on the cross for us so that we could have eternal life. So that we could have that hope. As we wrap up this morning... As we wrap up what, what we're, I'm saying here this morning, and uh, Michael's going to come with the team, and we're going to worship in a final song, but we realize that the forecast was made over and over by God's prophets. Time and time again. Now John says, once uh, the long-expected Christ has come, all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. It's one thing to say, I'm I'm a child of this person or that person. But it's a whole nother thing to say, I'm a child of God. It was expected that he would come and become become the light of the world, and that's what he has done. The question is this. Have you received him? Have you believed in his name? Have, can you say, I am a child of God? Would you stand up with me this morning? If you can declare that, that I am a child of God, that is a wonderful thing. Because to be able to say, I'm a child of God, is a powerful statement. Knowing that God has brought us into his family, into his kingdom, brought us out of darkness, brought us into light, we have been become willing to say, Lord, see me as I am. And I need to accept your grace. I don't know about you, but I needed grace. I still need grace. You probably need grace too. I hope that you've accepted that. If not, you can put your faith and your trust in him this morning, knowing that he is faithful to bring you into his fellowship. I am concerned in days like this. I think more and more people choose to go their own direction. They run away from the light when Jesus, who is the light, gives hope. 
today is the day of salvation. Let me pray for you this morning and our prayer teams are going to come. And then if you would like to pray with one of our prayer teams, please, please feel free to do so. We'd love to pray with you. Father, I pray for each and every one of us here in this place. I pray that you would help each of us as we focus our hearts and our minds on you. Help us to be able to step out of ourselves and look to you. Allow you to work in our lives, to accept what you have done on the cross for us. Jesus, you laid your life down so that we could have life. And Father, as we look to you this morning, we pray that you would help us. We put our faith in you that Jesus, you died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. And you rose from the from the grave and you defeated death held in the grave we have a victorious savior and we look to you this morning and we give you thanks in Jesus name